Hi, it's Di here. Did you know that you can help to support my podcast series by buying me a cup of coffee? Well, you do now. If you'd like to do this, please use the link that's in the show notes. Thank you for your support and thank you for listening to the Bandit About podcast series. Bye. the Bandit About podcast. In 2013, today's guest became the 16th drummer for a band called The Mark of Cain, which is a band that I first saw back in the mid-80s. Of course, joining me today is the one and only Eli Green. Welcome, Eli. No worries, Di. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Let's start from the beginning, Eli. Where were you born? I was born in uh, Victor Harbour, I believe. I was born in the little little hospital down in Victor Harbour. Okay. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a southern boy. Most of my family's from down that way. Oh, lovely. Do either of your parents have a musical background? Definitely my dad. He's a very musical person. He has been a musician his more or less his entire life. He probably started around the same time I did as a young kid, um, and he's I think he had a, you know, his first band was with his brothers, just doing, you know, little Beatles type songs and <clears throat> things like that. And uh, since, you know, the early days, he's been, yeah, playing in cover bands, did a little bit of interstate touring to some extent, just playing some shows at, at pubs around the place. And um, yeah, that was one of my earlier musical memories, was going and watching dad play at the local pubs down at sort of Victor, Port Elliot, Gulwa kind of way. Um, and yeah, actually, I think it was, might've been my first experience with the band was actually jumping up and, and playing a song with, with his band, filling in for his drummer one night. Oh, really? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Mum's side, uh, there are some musical folk on her side of the family. She's not particularly musically inclined, but, um, on that side, you know, some of my uncles and aunties are musical theater, um, singers and actors and, Mm -hmm. Um, my grandfather was a, a big, you know, he loved loved music. He was a minister and sang in the in you know the church choir and played the organ and all sorts. So there's a fair bit of music and art um, around me. Yeah, um, sounds like it. Yeah, my cousin um, Ben is actually a, a pretty great um, Adelaide musician himself. He doesn't play so much now, but he used to front a band called Move to Strike that was quite influential for me early on and. You know, obviously a lot more um, modern music, which is kind of nice. So, mm. yeah, there's there's a fair few of us around the place. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you certainly did have quite a, a lot of musical influences around you growing up. So you first uh, started playing when you were seven, is that correct? I did, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, gee, a long time ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to tell us how that happened? Um. Yeah, I had no desire to play the drums. Um, <laughs> I think I got into it more so because uh, at the time, 
my my parents were going through a separation and it was sort of at the point where <clears throat> myself as an only child was sort of uh, in that uncomfortable position that a lot of children of divorced parents often find themselves in where they're sort of the tennis ball between the two parents getting smacked between each other and it was it was not the, the greatest time for me as a kid and I think mum recognised that I needed some sort of outlet or some sort of... Um, you know, maybe like a, another role model or a different figure in my life or something to distract me. And I think she maybe thought the drums would be a particularly good cathartic instrument. Um, so she signed me up to uh, drum lessons with the local teacher. It was a guy called James Clay. I think I remember we, we had like a meeting with him like before we started lessons and, and I, I wasn't really too bothered about the whole thing. I didn't really care, to be honest, but I, I think mum was, was pretty passionate about it. I'm not sure how much dad had to, to do with it but I'm sure he would have been supportive of it given that you know he was a musician himself and mm. it was something that we could kind of bond over but yeah I started playing drums f with no interest in playing the drums but there was a, a good group of us um sort of in my year at school and the year above and below um and I went to a very small country town school so we didn't have a lot of people and and I was sort of a not the typical join the football club cricket ball uh, cricket club type guy yeah. uh, so I, d I didn't really kind of fit in with that niche so all of a sudden I kind of found myself in with this like group of people you know there was about 10 or 12 of us across the sort of three years either side that were playing drums and we, we kind of had this like cool little click um, which was nice um, but I, I guess I, I didn't really I didn't really recognize myself as like a musician yeah. as such I was just I played the drums as a bit of a hobby um, but it was great. James was a fantastic teacher and, you know, I had a lot of fun. I really enjoyed skipping out on maths classes to go and play the drums. <laughs> um, my maths teacher and I didn't get along very well. So every time he'd, he'd demand that I'd, I'd change my lesson time to a different, different subject in the day. And I'd, I'd go down and see James and I'd say, Oh, James, Mr. Brazier is, he's asked me to change the lesson time again. And he'll go, okay, great. So can we put it on a different maths lesson later in the week? Yep. Fa fantastic. <laughs> He knew the deal. So he really tucked me under his wing and, um, you know, I, I think he recognised that I didn't really care about playing the drums so much. I just wanted a bit of an escape and it was really good almost therapy for me in a way. Mm. Um, and my family was really cool about it. Like my, my nan on my dad's side helped me out with paying for lessons because we didn't have much money growing up. So, you know, everyone was really cool with it. And then at a certain point I... I think I never really got that link to being a musician. You know, I thought, I, like I said, I just saw myself as just a guy who played the drums. Yeah. Um, and then at a certain point, I, I kind of lost the the passion for it. James tried. He took me to drum clinics and, you know, tried to get me into some other stuff. But he never really kind of introduced me to playing music. Mm. And then it wasn't until a couple of years later that a couple of friends of mine and, like, I guess it was the just before high school... Um, had started playing guitar and they came to me and said, hey, we've decided to start a band. Um, you're going to be our drummer. I was like, guys, I haven't played drums in like almost two years. Uh, I can't, I, I'm not your drummer. And they're like, no, no, meet us in the performing arts room at lunchtime. We're going we're gonna to play some songs and, and you're the guy. And I was like, oh, hell. And I remember going, okay, well, I don't have drumsticks with me. And the back of my school sort of backed onto this like large pine forest. Um, so I went up to the, the bank at the back of the school and I, I like looked around the, the tree limbs that were overhanging over the fence and I tried to find the two most, well, least gnarled sticks that I could find <laughs> that, that vaguely resembled drumsticks. 
and they like cut my hands up all terribly and stuff. But it was, you know, I just I had to do it. My friends were like, "Come on, we're counting on you." So I, I went to the performing arts room, and and then they were like, "Right, do you know how to play this song? Do you know how to play this song?" It was a bunch of like Nirvana and Blink One Eight Two and all the sort of stuff mm. we were listening to at that age, and I didn't really know it because I hadn't been playing and I I hadn't been listening to a lot of that style style of music in a while. Um, but I kind of winged my way through it, and and then that was it. Like I I remember racing home that night and going, yeah, this is this is the thing. Like I'm back into it. I pulled the drum kit back into my room from out in the shed and mm. started learning all these songs. And and it was like that's really where it clicked for me. I was probably like 14 or so, and I was like, I just want to be in a band. Like I love this. Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. So you mentioned the uh, pulling the drum kit out. What was your first kit? My first kit was a hand-me-down from one of my dad's drummers, a guy called Carl. Um, he he gave me uh, what was a Mayer Pro Drummer, which is a bit of a it's an obscure brand. I've only seen maybe like one or two others out in the wild. Um, it was this big like '80s style thing, massive drums. Like I think the bass drum was a 24 inch, which for me at seven or eight years old when I got it was Huge. about as tall as I <laughs> yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I remember having that and I could never get it to sound good and the cymbals were just some junky ones, but it was, it was a gift and you know, we didn't, I don't think we had to pay for it or if it was, it was all favors and, and Carl who, you know, Carl Ross, dad's drummer was, um, he was really great to me. Like I remember he gave me, you know, some of the best advice that I still don't understand to this day, but I, I repeat it to my students now and that that is loose. Loose is goose. He watched me play and said, you've got a great loose style. Don't forget, loose is goose, man. Loose <laughs> I just is goose. don't know what that means. <laughs> don't know what it means, but sometimes it rings true in my head. I remember Carl telling me that and I go, yeah, okay, Carl, loose is goose. So, yeah, that was my first kit. Um, and then I, I slowly upgraded that. Um, well, actually, no, that's not true. I, we bought a, a nice, like first drum kit, like proper first new kit from a store from Derringer's when I was maybe, uh, 16 mm. or something like that. Um, 15, 16. And that was cause I was starting to do some shows with my first band, the little high school band that I had. Um, and the old mayor kit just wasn't really cutting it. Mm. So dad took me up to Derringer's and we, we got this, um, this red and like, yellow like sunburst fade sonor 3000 kit which was a really nice kit it was a bit out of our price range but it i think it had been um taken out for like like human nature were doing their like motown tours at the time like i remember seeing the tv ads for that all the time and they they'd played adelaide maybe the night before or a couple of weeks prior and the drummer had used that kit Right. And I think he'd he'd scuffed up the finish on it or something. Mm-hmm. So they said, "Oh, look, you're a young guy. Here, we'll give you a discount on this one because he's he's put a little little scratch in the in the paint. We can't really do anything about it." So we ended up walking away with a whole lot more kit. And then um, I remember coming home and I'd, I'd eaten something like maybe some dubious service station pie on the way home, and I, I got really bad food poisoning, and I was like stuck on the couch for like a week and a half. Mm-hmm. And I just it was it was like a birthday present. This kid, I remember now. And I remember, like, just hobbling up, like, walking to my room, like, from the couch, and I'd just go to my drums that were just sitting in the bags. Like, I hadn't been able to take them out of the bags and even play them yet because I'd been just laid up. And I'd, like, unzip them, and I'd smell the new drum kit smell, and I'd go, okay, maybe tomorrow I'll feel better. And I remember that first day I I finally felt good enough to set the kit up and 
and have a play. It was it was the best. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Th- those are my first two real like kits that I got as a kid. Wow, that's great. So who taught you? So I mentioned my first teacher, James mm. Clay, and he he taught me for about four years in uh, middle school, primary school, middle school. Mm-hmm. And then when I got back into playing in the bands, I didn't have a teacher for a fair while, um, which I think was good because James gave me a really good foundation of rudiments and basic styles, but I didn't have that kind of like how to play a song thing down. So I think I just did that on my own for a fair while. Mm. Um, probably picked up a lot of bad habits, but you know it was it was fun. And then I I got to the point in high school where. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to go to school anymore. Mm. I was over it. I think I everyone student, goes through that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just like, like I said earlier, I, I feel like I didn't really fit in with the country school mold. Um, you know, I wanted to do art and music, and we didn't really have that. Our music program shut down. Our art program was pretty limited. It was mostly like farming, trades, and agriculture and stuff. Mm. And it just wasn't really my speed. So I started doing a like a small music course at Seaford High, like once a week. And then from there I went, this is what I want to do. Um, so I applied to go to the Norlunga TAFE. Mm-hmm. Um, I dropped out of high school. Mum was really cool. She was like, yeah, you can you can leave school as long as you like go get some other piece of paper that says you're, you know. <laughs> Doing something. <laughs> accomplished. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Mm. So, um, so that was cool. She let me do that. Um, that was very awesome. So I applied for that and I, I, I auditioned and that was for, uh, yeah, like I said, the no longer TAFE campus back when Mario was the teacher there. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, at first I, I didn't think I got in. Um, and I remember like, I, I even was like signing up to go to year 12 at another school because I was like, oh, I, I didn't do it. I wasn't good enough. And then um, turns out there had been like a really bad clerical error and a few of the students of that year hadn't been notified that they got in. Mm. So I found out the day before the course started that, hey, you're in, like you got to come and enroll right now. And, you know, you were in from the day you auditioned, just no one let you know. And I was <laughs> like, oh, my God. Yeah, so um, that kind of changed everything. And, and then, yeah, Mario taught me for the next, um, I guess that was three or four years. Um, and then from there... I didn't have lessons for a while because after music school, I started working professionally. And then I took a few trips to the US uh, in 2000, I want to say 2016, 2015, 2016. And while I was over there, sort of the purpose of it for me was to study with as many professional players over there as I could. So I, I took a lesson with Dave Elich, who's widely regarded as the sort of the modern technique guru. Mm. Um, and he completely just tore me to shreds in the best way. He was like, you know how to play the drums, but you don't know how to hit a drum, man. I was like, oh, no, I've been doing this for almost 20 years at this point. And, you know, I'm being told by one of the best of the best that I don't know what I'm doing. And yeah. He, it, was, it was a bit of an ego check, but it was really good because it, it sort of showed me what I needed to be focusing on. And I took an, another lesson with a guy called Billy Reimer, who is a, a big influence for me. He plays in a band called The Dillinger Escape Plan. And um, he took me out to his place for a day and, and we just like just sat in his mum's basement and just played drums. And, and he really like taught me a lot of similar stuff that Dave was teaching me, but from an angle that I could kind of, I could access a little bit more because it was more similar to how I was already playing. And then I spent the next 12 months just sitting on a practice pad in front of the TV whenever I had downtime, just working on what they'd shown me with my hands and feet. And I went back the following year um, 
to the NAMM show uh, in LA and, and that's near where uh, Dave's studio was. So I, I took another lesson with him and I walked in and I went, oh, dude, like I've been, I've been practicing, but I feel like I've forgotten so much of what was, what you taught me. And, you know, I, I kind of, I want to go over it all again as if I haven't done it. And he said, all right, well, show me this. And I showed him and he said, that's great. That's perfect. No worries. And he just basically said like, don't worry, you've, you've done well. Like you've, you've got everything that I've shown you and you know, you've, I don't know what you're so worried about. Like I had it in my head that I hadn't, I hadn't actually like remembered anything and I'd wasted his time, but it all, uh, it all worked out pretty well. And I, I don't really, I haven't really had too many lessons since. Yeah. Um, I've sort of been on the other side of it being the teacher now, but yeah. I'm probably due for one with someone. I've taken a few master classes here and there and gone to as many clinics as I can, but um, no, I haven't had a long-term teacher in a long time. Okay. So what was the first, um, first band that you joined? The first band I joined was, uh, well, I guess it was my high school band. Um, and we went through a number of different names. I think we ended up, what did we end up? I think we were most known as Ashes 11, which was a name that I hated because it was like, it sounded like a cricket team. Yeah, like it a does. Cricket <laughs> reference. Yeah. But the other guys were like, nah, it's real, like, you know, super emo and it's really like dark sounding. I was like, I don't know. It just makes me think of the Boxing Day test, but okay. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> we, we were this little pop punk band, little, little trio, um, and we played for a fair while and, you know, just, just around town. And that was really good. Um, that, I kind of cut my teeth doing that. And, uh, we got a lot of help from an old neighbor of mine who was like this, this older punk guy who'd moved down from the city and he'd heard this like little punk band rehearsing in the shed down the road. And he came over and was spouting all this stuff about, oh, yeah, I, you know, I used to mix all these bands in town and I'll lend you some gear. And I, I grew up, like, uh, mixing the Mark of Cain. And I was just like, you know, who's this, who's this like, old guy in our yeah. shed, like, talking about old bands that I don't care about? Like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> thanks for the help, but shut up. I don't need your life story. Um, little did I know years later I'd end up playing <laughs> drums for that band. Um but yeah, so he was really great. Nat uh, was his name, Nat LePage, and he helped us out a lot. He lent us a bunch of PAs and stuff. And then that band sort of disintegrated, and I ended up playing with a few friends um, that I'd met through skateboarding as a kid who'd just sort of started playing. And we started then, like, kind of playing more like a metal kind of, sort of metalcore kind of band. Um, I can't, what did we call I think I think we were called The Pattern as Follows for a while. Oh, no, there was another one in there. There's another one in there whose name I actually can't remember, but there were, there was a few iterations of these bands with more or less the same people. I mean, that was the country town curse. We had like six or seven musicians across the entire peninsula who were <laughs> roughly our age. Mm. And, you know, when you decided, oh, we don't like that guy, we're going to kick him out of the band, get the other guitarist that's available, and we're going to be a new band and we're all going to play the same songs. And it was kind of a weird, <laughs> strangely incestuous kind of band situation for a while. But mm. then... Um, then, yeah, when I got to music school, I started playing with uh, a few different, like, solo artists. And then I also got... I remember a fill-in gig came my way. Um, actually, no, I'm sorry. I'm skipping ahead. There was a band just before music school or just around the time that I entered um, called Raccoon City, which was a band that I, along with some of my friends who had kind of started playing music together back when we were in... Um, school days we had wanted to um do something a little bit more i don't know call it professionally but do, do it take it a little bit more seriously other than just like a garage jam band mm. so we started a band and we pulled in um 
uh, Nick Evans, who was a student at TAFE with me on bass. And we, we played as this band called Raccoon City for a, quite a few years. Um, and that was really cool because that was my first band that was really like doing a lot of gigs in the city. Mm. Um, for me as a country kid, like I didn't really break out of gigging down south until, yeah, I was like 17, 18. I guess I was probably 18 to play in the clubs. Um, and we were all about the same age. So, yeah, we were like this really young band just playing like opening slots of like heavier nights, like little club nights here and there. And I remember we'd get all these people coming up to us and kind of like, what are you guys, like 12 years old? Like <laughs> <laughs> They were kind of kind of blown away. But like we'd been doing it for so many years at that point um, and we'd been playing together in so many iterations of different bands, the majority of us, that it, I guess it was fairly polished and... I worked with that band for quite a while uh, until towards the end of music school where uh, things got kind of weird and there was ended up being this pretty awful split in the band. Um, but that was that was a really formative band for me. That, that really taught me a lot. And then through that, I ended up doing a fill-in gig for a band called Dogs With Bees In Their Mouths, which is a pretty hilarious name, mm. who had been around for a long time um, but was sort of on their last legs. Their drummer had... had shoulder surgery and they had a singer left and stuff so they were kind of like we just need someone to like tidy up the last few gigs that we've got booked and then we might call it a day so I remember learning all their songs which was like really complex stuff I did the fill-in show for them down in Mount Gambia drove down that night played the show drove back that night didn't get home until four in the morning or something and then I remember had another show with Raccoon City the next day um and I, after that show, the the singer and the guitarist of that band, who were brothers, sent me a message and said, hey, like we're not going to do any more shows as, as dogs, but we really like your style. We've got this band that like was this side project that we've started. Do you want to join? Uh, it's called Life Pilot. Mm. It's sort of in the vein of a lot of the bands that you've listed, The Chariot, Norma Jean, who are your favourite artists. Like We think your style would be really good. Mm-hmm do you know a bass player? And at the time I was living with Nick, who was the bass player of Raccoon City, who he and I are almost like our musical DNA is almost an exact clone of one another. So he loved all those same bands and he's a bit of a madman on stage as well. So I I said, no, don't worry. I've got the exact, exactly the guy you need. And from that point on, we started as life pilot and haven't looked back ever since. Um, Yeah. So there was a really like big period sort of from, I guess the age of 17 for me, all to, you know, 21, 22. Then I joined the Mark of Cain after that, um, which was a whole thing. Mm, but, mm. yeah, so there was a lot in that, like, little cluster of about four years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they all kind of led into one another. <laughs> so what was the first major gig with uh, Life Pilot then? Um, first major one mm. was definitely Soundwave Festival. Mm. We played... We played a lot of smaller shows around town first, um, and that band was never. We never really anticipated that that band would would go over very well because we were playing a fairly um, noisy subgenre of a pretty noisy subgenre. <laughs> if you're not into thrashy music, you definitely wouldn't like our band. But in a weird way, things actually went really well for us. I think people. We always put a, a big. Um, onus on our live performance we wanted it to be like a really um like visually interesting show a lot of movement um and i I think people came out to those early shows and saw us doing what we were doing and and thought wow there's not really anyone else doing that at the moment and we got very lucky in that we sent um just on a whim we posted our demo cd 
to Stu Harvey, who was the host of Triple J's Short Fast Loud at the time, mm-hmm. um, just thinking, you know, maybe he'll give it a listen, who knows, or maybe one of the people who opens his mail will give it a listen. And then, like, later that week, we, we got the heads up that, hey, we're going to play your your demo on Triple J. Like, we think this is amazing. And we were like, wow, this is something that we literally just recorded in our bedroom. Like, this isn't anything good. Mm. Um <laughs> So we ended up on that and we just saw like all of a sudden, you know, all our social media numbers went up and we had people emailing us. Like we had man- like the manager from um, Birds of Tokyo interested in us for a minute there. And all of a sudden, like we were just these young kids that had like this potential career being handed us. Like, and we thought, oh, wow, this is nuts. And then from there, we ended up winning the Triple J Unearthed competition to play Soundwave Festival to open up and that was the year that Metallica played mm. so we ended up winning that and on stage you know opening the show to a couple thousand people on this massive massive stage and you know backstage is Metallica road cases everywhere with the logo and there's Blink 182 who are playing on the stage in a couple of hours like we ended up playing on the same stage as so many of the bands that influenced myself and the other guys in the band to start playing music in the first place which was absolutely insane. It would have um, been an amazing feeling for you, all of you, really, wouldn't it? Wow. <laughs> it was, yeah. It, it was a true highlight. We had some of the guys in the band at that time were were a little older. Um, Tim, who was our rhythm guitarist, um, he had been in a band called Embodiment 1214 who um, had, had sort of done Big Day Out and a few other things mm. like in the, in the early thousands, late 90s sort of thing. Um, so he'd been around a little bit longer and he'd done some cool stuff. And I think he was sort of on his way out of music at that point. He'd, he'd stuck around with the band for a few more years, did some touring with us. But I think to him, that was a really nice full stop on his musical career. So it was a real highlight for us getting into it as like, wow, like look at us, you know, we've just kicked down the doors of the industry, so to speak. Mm. And then for some of the older guys, it was like, great, this is, this is cool. Like I can kind of you know, now that I'm, I'm old and I'm having kids and getting married, I can kind of step away from this and feel like I've accomplished something. So that was a really phenomenal gig. We'll never forget that one. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was, that was the biggest one for Life Pilot early on, I think, for sure. Awesome. So do you have a memorable gig story other than that one, obviously, um, <laughs> good or bad, that you'd like to share? Uh, I have a lot. Um <laughs> <laughs> It's been it's been an interesting time touring um, with some of these these bands and artists that I work with. Mm. So there's there's been lots of ups and downs. Um, Life Pilot especially is a band that seems to have a magnet for strange stories. Um, we've had lots of like memorable good gigs, lots of memorable bad gigs. We had one memorable one where um, we played a show in Newcastle at the Hamilton Station Hotel and it was sort of in the back area there and we'd, we'd played with a bunch of bands that weren't really, like they didn't really match our sort of vibe. They were a little bit more like, they were kind of like Blink-182 kind of bands and we're certainly far, far, far past that in terms of like how heavy and abrasive we are. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we were kind of like a bit a bit like oh this is going to be interesting like we might be the odd ones out here um by the time we got up to play the crowd had the, you know they'd been drinking beers all night and they were getting a little bit loose and they were kind of jumping around a little bit for the the fun sort of party punk bands 
And then we got up and started doing our thing, which is very much like embracing the kind of the craziness and the chaos. Like I don't see half of my band members for half of the show because they're all running around the crowd or hanging on lighting rigs mm, somewhere else. Mm. You know, it's, it's all kind of nuts. So they were doing that whole thing and, and it really like it started to <laughs> infect the crowd and a couple of people really lost their mind. I remember this one guy came up and he was like a, an older bloke um, there's a lot of like wharf workers that would come to this this pub after their shift and would just you know drink at the front bar and if there happened to be a band playing they wouldn't really give it too much notice. But this guy came up in his high vis and his short stubby thongs and or his stubby shorts and his his thongs and he took one of his thongs off and he he handed it to our singer mm. and he demanded that he smack him in the face with his thong. <laughs> What is this guy? And like we're in the middle of a song, like we're mm. we're doing it, we're really going for it. And Angus is like, "What? What am I supposed to do?" So he kind of taps the guy gently, and the guy's like, "No, no, no! Really hit me!" And he was like, "Okay." So he really walloped him across the face, and the guy was like, "Yeah!" And then ran <laughs> off and like started moshing, and then disappeared. I don't think he ever got his thong back. And then later at that same show, I think we had a guy who found um, our bass player, Nick, he, he would always like tape his guitar strap to his bass guitar just because he was always throwing it around mm. like the crazy person that he is. So he, he never wanted his strap to come off. So he'd always tape it down with this like yellow, like high-vis tape. And this guy found it. It must have rolled off stage or something. And he grabbed it and he started like trying to stick us to our instruments. <laughs> like he, he just, he started like, yeah, like winding the tape around like Nick's arm while he was trying to play the bass. And then he... he ran up to Angus and he started like sticking the microphone cable around his head and Angus has these like long like six foot dreads so you can imagine yeah. like, the, the chaos oh that my that was God. <laughs> it was just it was absolute like complete looseness and ever ever since we've we've just loved playing that particular city like we just never know what's going to happen when we when we go there and yeah it's kind of <laughs> weird so we, we've got lots of really odd stories like that when we went to Perth one time um we ended up playing this this big festival. They hadn't had shows like uh, of this style in Perth for a fair while, so there was a promoter over there who was trying to really reinvigorate the local scene, and he brought us over. God knows why, but he thought we'd be a good fit, and um, we ended up playing in this this big like I think it might have been like the Fremantle Town Hall or something like that. It's too long ago now to remember, but. Um, we were sort of, I think, maybe second to last on the night. So people were, you know, pretty warmed up by the time that we went on. And at the end of our set, sometimes we do this bit of shtick where we get to the end of the last song right before the, the big finish and there's a good pause. And in the pause, we'll sometimes pull the drums down into the crowd if it's that sort of gig. And, and I'll play the last section of the last song in the crowd with yeah. everyone around me. And, and we, we thought, hey, let's do this. Let's give this a go. We haven't done it in a while. Usually we do it in small venues like Enigma Bar where there's maybe 100 people watching us. And then we did it in this room where there was probably about 300, 400, 500 people. And it was all good. It was going fine. And then I remember looking up right before and everyone had like taken sticks out of my stick bag that had been dragged down. So I had about 100 people like standing directly around me, like completely circling me, holding drumsticks, looking at me like, we're, we're coming for you, buddy. Um, like, <laughs> you know. And I just, I remember feeling like this Im immense sense of dread, like something really bad is about to happen here. Mm. Like, this, is, this is not good. But it ended up being a really beautiful moment because the whole crowd, like they didn't really know the song. A few of them did, but not really too many, but they all ended up just kind of like coming over and slamming the drums with me. And it was, it was weird. It was like kind of this scary thing, but it was, it was also strangely beautiful in a way. And 
I remember we came off stage that night. Well, I came off the floor that night and we all said like, that was one of the best shows we've ever played. Like mm. that was just so, the vibe in the room was so good that night. So yeah, that band has got a lot of weird ones. It um, sure has. <laughs> yeah. The first show I played with the Mark of Cain is a, is a very memorable one um, because joining that band was such a was such an interesting journey that by the time I got to play with them, um, you know, I felt like I had a lot to prove. I was this young guy coming into a band who had records older than me. Well, yes, um, they had been playing when 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 I first started going out to see bands in in town, you know, in the mm, like yeah. mid eighties. So I was really That's quite, um, yeah. Like, I was like, oh my god, you know, <laughs> this band is still around. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Well, like I said, my old neighbour used to chew my ear off about this old band, this old legendary band, The Mark of Cain, and John Scott taught him how to mix drums mm. and blah blah blah. Mm. And I used to get so over it. And I never actually looked the band up. And it wasn't until years later that, um, through a, a mutual acquaintance of John, that I ended up sort of being reintroduced to the band, or probably introduced them, I should say. Mm. And I kind of went, oh, wow, this band's really cool. They and, are. And what, yeah. I, and I was really surprised that I hadn't actually really had them pushed to me from anyone else. I guess maybe Country Town strikes again there. Yeah, maybe I'd say not, so. Not many people knew about them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, so as a result, like, yeah, they kind of just weren't on my radar until I met John. And um, he saw me play, he saw one of my tape recitals and he said to me, like, he'd sort of seen that I was interested in the heavier side, which obviously the market cane has. Mm. And, but I was also really interested in playing odd time, obscure rhythms. And um, I was really into like drum and bass and just some really wild kind of frantic playing at the time. And I think he saw that all of those things line up and he went like, this guy could be a good guy to work with. Um, and he'd sort of become a bit of a mentor for me at that point, like just in terms of, you know, in the industry and, um, yeah, just, just a career advice kind of guy. Mm. So I remember he, he said, like, you know, we're, we've got this album that we want to release, but our drummer, John Stanier, is, you know, he's a US-based drummer and it's really hard for us to get him for any length of time. But we haven't rehearsed in... I think it had been close to five years mm. since that band had gotten in a room. Um, there'd been all sorts of reasons as to why that hadn't happened. And um, the album had taken a long time to produce. So they were finally at the point where they were happy with it and it was done, but they needed to get back in a room and, and rehearse. And they sort of said, look, you know, Kim and myself, the two Scott brothers, we're not, you know, trained musicians. This is something that we have always done, but it's, it's you know, it takes us a while to, to dust off the cobwebs. Um, so, you know, we thought, how about we get a local drummer in to help us rehearse? Mm. Um, and then by the time the tour rolls around, we'll be ready and we can get Stanier in who's, you know, the, the consummate professional and we'll have a couple of jams with him and we'll be good to hit the road. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is fantastic. This happened just after I was out of music school, um, which was a, a really like fortuitous kind of event. Cause I just, I'd actually just been kicked out of Raccoon City. There was a whole lot of politics that went on with that and I I decided not to go to the conservatorium after finishing um, TAFE and I, I felt like I'd made all these bad decisions I was like oh, I've, I've really put my career already in the in the trash can here and then all of a sudden this amazing opportunity came up just to rehearse with them and I thought all right well let's do that um, so I, I did my school nerd thing and I, I wrote out all the songs note for note and I really paid a lot of careful attention to it because I 
I respected their music mm. and I respected the fact that this band had been around for a long time um, before I'd even picked up the sticks, you know, a long time before I'd even been born. So I thought, well, let's not go in and, and try to tell them how to play their no, music. So no. I went in, re- yeah, I went in really prepared and um, the first rehearsal I had with them, Kim actually wasn't able to go. Um, so they, they brought in a fill-in bass player, which wasn't very good for the rehearsal because he didn't know any of the songs, but it ended up being really good for me because I was able to, to help guide him because I knew the music so well at this point, um, I could tell him, like, you know, this is how you need to play with me. This is what the rhythm is. I played a bit of guitar and bass, so I was actually able to, to show him what some of the riffs were. And I remember seeing John over the other side of the room just taking note of all this, going, like, wow, this guy, he really knows his stuff. Mm. Um, so we did a bunch more rehearsals, and I think we ended up getting about 20 or 30 songs up and running and that were sounding good, and we were starting to gel together as a unit. And it became clear that, John Stanier wasn't going to be able to do the album tour, the mm. big comeback tour. He'd committed to other things with Helmet and Tomahawk and, um, yeah, he just wasn't wasn't able to make it work. So they went, oh, we're going to have to get a, a drummer in for the tour, which obviously was a good opening for me. However, their management was like, well, let's look at some of the big heavy hitters, your Lucius Boriches, you know, mm. all those sorts of massive Australian drumming names that we all know. And I thought, okay, well, that's that's it. You know, it's been a nice run. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure Lou will end up with a gig. And in a in a very weird twist of fate, um, I think my kind of deep understanding of the music, the respect that I paid it in learning it in the first place, and and not trying to do my own thing, mm. um, that ended up serving me really well. And in the face of all these like big illustrious names they ended up opting to go with the little 21 year old kid who just had been helping him all this time and mm. hadn't been asking for money or anything like that mm. um so yeah the press releases went out that this this young guy was playing drums for them and then all of a sudden people were like who's this kid you know what what's going on what's i remember tuning into triple j one night and um you know i, I turned it on to see if like a, I'd sent in a new single from Life Pilot and I, I was interested to see if they were playing it that night. I remember turning the radio on and that that song was playing. I was like, oh, wow, cool, that's my band, that's awesome. Mm. And then the next song that played was a Mark of Cain song and I was like, oh, wow, isn't that isn't that wild? Like, that's the band that I'm playing drums for at the moment, that's cool. And then I remember Stu back announced it and he said, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is Mark of Cain, this is Life Pilot and they actually share a drummer at the moment, the drummer of Life Pilot's going out, this young kid, Eli Green. I'm like, oh, my God, like... They're, They're talking, talking about, about me. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it's me specifically on mm. Triple J. Like this is insane. So I think a lot of people were kind of like, who is this young kid? So that first show, it was a sold-out show at HQ here in Adelaide back when it was on West Terrace. Mm. And um, to me, like that's where I grew up like play, uh, watching the big bands that made me want to play drums. You know, I'd go and see Parkway Drive and all these big metal bands from Australia play HQ and it was my dream to like play there one mm. night. And the first show of the tour was a sold-out show at HQ. Awesome. And it was insane. It was so, so unbelievably cool. And I, to this day, I don't think I've played a Mark of Cain set as tight and as, as like, well-polished as I have. <laughs> I think it's all been downhill from there. But it was amazing feeling that energy off the crowd. Like, Mark of Cain fans are just so unbelievably passionate they're all also about seven foot tall which helps yeah scary looking (laughs) yeah a little bit a little bit but they're all extremely lovely people Mm. you know and and i can't i can't say enough amazing things about how they've all welcomed me in as this new guy you know um who's not of their age group not really of their generation and um 
but they've all been so kind and so lovely. We've had people make us cakes and stuff, and it's just yeah, it's so it's so cool. Like yeah, that first show was really something very special. The whole first tour, but especially that first one. I, I remember coming off stage feeling like oh, I did it. Like okay, I'm I'm happy with how I played. They were happy with how I played, and you know from that point on, it's it's all been good. You know, yeah. I've still been working with them to this day. That's excellent. Great story. Mm. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you've filled in with uh, different bands, as you said, and you've done a lot of session work. Um, is there a band that you wish that you had said yes to? Um, um, that you had to turn wish... down for one whatever reason and then later you went, oh, gee, I wish I hadn't have done that? Um, that's a really good question. I I remember turning down a a Southeast Asian tour with a band who are some friends. Um, but it was, it was in a period where I was extremely busy. Um, I was working for, yeah, Mark McCain and life pilot. And I was doing a lot of pickup gigs with solo artists around the time and mm. touring a lot. And I, and I wasn't home much. And around that same time, this band asked me to, to do a, a Southeast Asian tour. And I was more than happy to do it. And I, I, I could kind of look at the dates and I could make it work. But, as is sadly a lot of the way, especially here in Adelaide, um, a lot of people don't really understand the session musician. When I say a lot of people, I mean a lot of the bands around town, the original bands that maybe don't come from the professional musician sort of angle. They're just like guys who play in a band. Um, they maybe don't really understand the nuances of, of being a session musician and what that kind of means mm. and, and, um, they asked me to come on tour and I said, yeah, that'd be great. And they were like, look, we don't really have much money to pay you. And I sort of said, look, that's okay. Like your friends of mine, like maybe if you guys can scrounge together enough money to like cover my week of rent while I'm away with you guys, like that's fine, you know, whatever. Um, and they said that that's okay. We can make that work. That's fine. It was a bit of a favor, but then they said, look, can you, um, can you cover your like portion of the, the flights and the accommodation. And I was like, why would I do that? And they're like, Oh, you're joining the band for, for this. I'm like, well, no, I'm, it's your band. I'm just, I'm just coming along to help you out mm. so you can do the tour. You know, their mm. drummer had left or, or something. And I was, I was sort of like, no, I can't do that. Like that's, that's not really my kind of vibe and um, it's not really going to work. And I think, I think some of them got it, but I, I think they were kind of a bit like, Oh, you know, who's this guy is a bit stuck up, not going to, not going to pitch in or whatever. But I, I kind of, I've had that a few times with people around town, just kind of going like, well, why should I, why should I pay you? And, and also then not have you kind of like invest in the project. And it's like, well, it's not, it's not my project. At the end mm. of the day, I don't walk away with anything. You know, you take my time and my, you're borrowing my abilities, I guess, for the time. And uh, yeah, so I, I would have liked to have done that, but I guess situation didn't really allow for it mm. um, because they're all really great guys. I'm still friends with a lot of them now and, um, you know, it would have been a great tour. And I think as a result, I don't think they even went, which was a shame. But thankfully, a lot of the the bands that I've been offered to join, um, I've either joined, luckily, like the Mark of Cain or Life Pilot or if I haven't joined, it's, it's kind of turned out for the best in the end. Mm. Um, I did have an opportunity to audition for the super Jesus a few years ago and, and that went really, really well. And then, uh, they ended up getting, um, Andy Strawn from the living end, who obviously goes way back with those guys. They're mm. all old friends. He ended up coming in and, and doing their sort of comeback tour a few years ago. And, 
and at first I was a bit like, man, that sucks. Like I put in a lot of effort for this and you know, uh, I, I sort of had the gig, um, but then it all kind of got taken out from under me. But I, at the end of the day, I, I kind of went like, you know what? Like I like this band. I really like this band. Super Jesus are great, but I don't know if, if I would enjoy it playing it uh, like uh, from a whole to like after a whole two, I don't know if I would enjoy it as much as I, as I do just listening to the music and appreciating it. And it's ended up really great because now my friend Travis Draghini, who has been such a like cool guy that we've like played gigs together. Our bands have gigged together, Life Pilot and his old bands plenty of times mm. over the years. Like he, he's now their drummer yeah, and he's so much of a better fit than I would have been. You yeah. Know? He does a great um, job. Yeah. Oh, he's amazing. Travis is the best. Um, and you know he's up there repping Life Pilot shirts while he's playing with them. Like I, you know, like I'm still there in spirit. So I don't feel bad about not getting that gig. Um, you know, I think that they made the right call in getting Andy. You know, over me because mm. he is not only stylistically appropriate but age appropriate as well. Like he understands more than I probably do where they're coming from musically. Yeah. Um. And and that's and the same with Trav. You know, Trav's a little bit older than me, and and I think you know, his style just fits them so well. And it's such a good opportunity for him. Like he's such an amazing drummer and he deserves that. Like I've already got some good gigs. So yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't you can't have them all. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't want to take the monopoly on, on, on that sort of like nineties, early thousands era mm. rock band here in Adelaide. We only have a couple of them that are still running. So yeah. I don't want to play for all of them. You can't play for but all of them. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. And, and again, I get to enjoy them as a listener now and an audience member, which, you know, sometimes is, is better than being the guy, you know, behind the kit. Mm, mm. Now, the, the genres of the solo artists that uh, you've been working with is really quite different from the band work that you do. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was really quite surprised when I saw that you did that. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's like really yeah. going from one extreme to, to the other, isn't it? It, it is. It definitely is. And it, I guess it's not something that I ever anticipated that I would have done much of. Mm. Um, I think I have, I have my time with Mario um, to thank for that because he, uh, not only that, but just, just doing that music course, you know, the diploma of music that used to be offered at, at TAFE, um, that really opened my eyes because I came into that as mostly self-taught punk rock drummer, you know, um, and then I was forced to become... Uh, like well-rounded blues, jazz, rock, Latin, funk, everything else drummer. Mm. And I was like, it was a real shock to the senses at first. I had a lot of catch-up to do. I was terrible at the theory side of stuff. So I, I really had to push the gas hard on that side of things, and I, I didn't really end up doing as much heavy stuff for a while there. Mm. Um, and I think as a result, I started to form a bit of a a love for things outside of that very narrow scope of music I'd been listening to. Mm. So, yeah, and I, I think my my love for electronic music really kicked off, you know, around that time because I got into, like, drum and bass and, like, that more frantic style of electronic drumming. And I, I really saw, like, a, a cool crossover in terms of how that style of things can work within pop. And I, I got into jazz, not in a big way, but... I really appreciated the texture of it. Mm. Uh, I liked the the subtlety and the nuance. And I really like, I'm a bit of a, a nerd about drum tones and things. So being able to kind of break out of just the heavy, smashy, everything sounds massive 
side of things and get into this like very polar opposite delicate side of things mm. really it tickled my brain in a way that it sort of hadn't really been before so yeah I ended up doing a fair bit of work for a number of years with a lot of solo artists I'm not really doing that anymore but um for yeah as long as I've been doing the gigs with Life Pilot, you know which is almost nine or ten years now I've been working with a number of different solo artists around town and even interstate and um, yeah, it was a, a good balance, I think, because I found myself when I was really busy with all the touring, really enjoying the times where I would be working on something that was not so flat out all the time. Mm. Um, you know, cause that, that not only takes a, a toll on you physically, but somewhat mentally and emotionally too, because you are really like leaving everything out there on stage every single night. And you can only do that so long before your body and your, your head really break down. So playing with someone who you just you got to just play backbeats all night or play some nice brush stuff or or follow the vocal and let them kind of soar like you're you're the background instrument that was really good and I ended up learning a lot about um, being an MD um, and and what it means to run a band Mm. behind the scenes and to kind of give the artist what they need um, from a musical perspective and also from a logistical perspective you know how to run tours I became a bit of a booking agent and manager for certain artists at times and um yeah it it became like a real a real like huge string to my bow after a few years I was getting calls from all sorts of people and did a fair bit of work with Rachel Leacar who most Adelaideans will know um from From the the voice voice yeah yeah, um did a whole tour with her and I worked on her album um not as a drummer funnily enough actually (laughs) as a as a producer and guitar player and a songwriter everything other than a drummer but um uh, yeah, it was a running joke that eventually she'd have to hire me as a drummer at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we went we went out on on her um, last full Australian tour, and um, that was cool. And uh, you know, I got to take Nick, who who had joined me, like Nick from Life Pilot, had you know um, joined me in a lot of these escapades as well. And I think after that, we sort of we realised that we'd been doing a lot of this stuff with n- numerous artists, and we were just kind of just a little bit over it. Um, not that it's bad, not that it's it's anything that we wouldn't necessarily do in future again, but at, at the time we were just like, it's time to like go back to doing what we love doing, mm. which is, you know, and, and I guess because we've matured so much as artists and musicians from the point where we started working with a lot of these solo artists, we felt like, you know, the, the heavier music that we make now can have more of those pop sensibilities to it or the folky things or whatever it was that we were working on, we can bring some of that in and, and feel like we're getting a more uh, well-rounded experience and the other stuff. So, yeah, the, the pop music and the electronic music has been really cool. Um, I've got to play some really cool gigs with, like, backup dancers and, you know, all sorts of cool, like, stage effects. and Yeah, you know, I've watched some of the videos on YouTube. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, whoa, awesome, awesome. this is really good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's, it's been really cool. Um, you know, it's it's become... It became something that um, I didn't anticipate ever being interested in. Mm. I used to be that, like, you know, annoying punk guy who was like, oh, pop music sucks. And now I'm that guy that, you know, was front row for Taylor Swift's 1989 concert. And, you know, I, you know, I I get it now. I get it. But I think I like, um, I like the simplicity of a lot of that stuff. And I also, I guess what I, I like about it is that it comes across simple, but I know how much effort goes into to every small thing, every detail is really cared about. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of like that. I still have a, a love for, you know, 
playing pop music, but I, I don't think I'll be doing any um, solo artist gigs for a while. I mean, there's not many mm. gigs going at the moment anyway, but I think um, I've, I've really just been enjoying the band work of late and sort of simplifying um, and having stepped away from a lot of those gigs. Like, I think that's that's been good. You know, I've, I've had a bit more time to focus where I want to focus. Excellent. Now you've toured quite a lot. And you've played I in have. a lot of, you know, venues and festivals. Tell us what it's like being on the road with a band. It is uh, tiring. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's the first thing that comes to mind. You are tired 24-7. Um, however, it is one of the most unique and beautiful experiences I think you can have mm. as a musician. Um the the memories that you make out on tour with someone or with a band is just so uh i don't know i don't know how to describe it but it, it is they're, they're very deep thing i mean it's like anything if you go travel overseas you know you experience so much in such a short amount of time it becomes this very like um dense part of of your memories you know of your life mm. and it's the same on tour you know you get in a van and you you drive 9 hours to melbourne to start the tour or whatever, you've got to fill that nine hours with something. So you get to know the people in your band, you get to swap stories, you get to laugh about stupid things. And when crazy stuff like people sticking you to their instruments happens, <laughs> you know, the five people that are there with you, that's something that they remember for the rest of their lives. Yeah. You know, sometimes like, you know, like our band has all these ridiculous inside jokes that are only funny to us. I mean, every band and, and friendship group has them, but it's beautiful because even the guys who've stepped out of the band now, you know, I can send them a message from time to time and, and just, just, just a little dumb quote that I'll, only they'll get and mm. it'll sort of make their day, you know, that little bit, little bit nicer. So that's, that's a lovely thing, but you know, it, it obviously comes with a lot of work, um, both in the preparation, which is often my job, um, with my bands anyway, like with life pilot, um, as, sort of the I guess the manager these tour days. Tour manager, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh mm. yeah, band manager with mm. Life Pilot to booking agent, tour manager, all mm. of that stuff. So I kind of I kinda of wear the dad hat when we go out, which is fine. Um the guys are all really good to work with, but it is an extra bit of um pressure, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's things that I have to be considerate of as well as just being the guy who plays drums in the band. Um but you know, you're there, you're working the whole time. I think, you know, non-musicians have an interesting view of what touring is. I think they think it's, you know, a lot of partying and a lot of, you know, kicking back with, with booze and girls and stuff like that. And it's like, it honestly couldn't be further from the truth because, you know, you're, you're in a van for nine or 10 hours a day. You're rocking up to the venue right before you've got to be there for a sound check. If you get one, mm. you know, you're, you're eating crap side of the road food most of the time, which is is challenging um and you're getting minimal sleep by the time you load out and get to your hotel you've got three hours before you have to be awake to do another 10 hour drive so um it can it can really wear wear on people but we've managed to especially with life pilot we've managed to like find a good balance of having a couple of days off in between the week and really spacing it out in a good way where we can we can um still play the sorts of shows that we want to play, you know, in, in the nice cities, in the nice nights with good energy and still also have a bit of downtime and to almost treat it like a bit of a holiday for ourselves with our mates. Mm. Um, 
And then touring with, you know, the Mark of Cain is obviously a dream because that band has the budget to fly and to have backline waiting for us. So we're not schlepping drums across the country or, you know, and have techs that make us sound good every night, you know. So mm. that's a whole other thing. Um, touring with that band is is just a dream. Um, I really wish they you were don't have to be often, dead. To be yeah. <laughs> no, I, it's weird. It's mm. the only time I get to be Eli. And I think I realized that that's why I wasn't enjoying doing so many of the other pop gigs for mm. a while was because I had to be dad and I don't mind being dad for life pilot because that's my band, yeah. you know, yeah. but when it's someone else's project and I have to be dad, I become a bit jaded about the whole thing. And then when I went on tour with the Mark of Cain, where I just had to be Eli, the guy who played drums, I was like, oh my God, touring's fun. Yeah, (laughs) this is is sick. Yeah. (laughs) I just get to sit in the Qantas lounge and and get coffee and cool. We're at a venue. Oh, my drums are already there waiting for me, already set up. Oh, they're set up. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) It's such a, you know, it's, it's way more luxury than. I'm used to, but it's so beautiful when that stuff happens and mm. I really appreciate it. So, you know, when you flip the coin and it's like, right, now you've got to do all that and be all that, you get a bit like, okay, I'm over it. But I love touring, you know, the the travel, seeing different parts of the country and the world is like, I mean, isn't that the dream yeah. to get paid or to be able to at least break even going and doing all of these things and making these memories. So, yeah, I love it. I'm, I've been very sad that touring has been off the cards since COVID has uh, kind of destroyed the music industry. But I'm sure seeing has. bands starting to, yeah, I'm seeing bands breaking out now and starting to do some touring again, um, which is really phenomenal. So I'm hoping that, you know, maybe towards the end of the year, I can get out with, with Life Pilot or the Mark of Cain and we can do something. It'd be great. It would be, yeah. Yeah, certainly would. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to COVID, seeing as you've already just mentioned it. Yeah, then, yeah. Um, how creative have you had to become to be able to continue doing work and recording new material? Pretty creative. Mm. Um, I'm, I feel very fortunate in how COVID has... Um, managed to not affect me too much um i'm very happy that like my so for for reference most of my income um when i'm not touring is from teaching mm-hmm. um i run my own teaching school and um that that has really been like a massive ace in my pocket so to speak so when covid hit it was obviously scary because one-on-one lessons you know you couldn't really do them anymore face to face um but you know i'm a i'm a techie enough guy that i realized i had pretty much everything i needed to set up um to do online lessons in a good way like i've wanted to do that in a for a long time you know there's a lot of great online teachers but I, I've always felt with that stuff, like it just doesn't really feel like you're there. Mm. So I've, I've kind of held off setting up that part of my business for a long time um, until, you know, I, I guess I had the reason to do it yeah. and the reason reared its, its ugly head. Um, but it, it turned out great in a way because I was able to set it up in a pretty short amount of time um, and I was able to help a lot of other friends of mine who were teachers interstate that maybe weren't so familiar with, you know, that side of things. I was able to help them get their business up and running a little bit more in, in terms of like pivoting into online lessons. Mm. Um, and, and I'm so thankful for my base of students who the majority of them didn't disappear on me throughout that. I, you know, there was so much, um, 
there was such a big question mark in the air about where people were going to be earning their income from and everything. You know, I was pretty convinced that everyone was going to disappear. You know, I was going to have three students and uh, I wouldn't have had any income. Mm. So I was blown away when really only one or two of them had to take any real time off. And then I was still able to teach, you know, the, the majority, 95% of my student base from home. Um, so that was, that was amazing. Mm. And then obviously when we got out of that lockdown type period where, you know, we couldn't have people in a small room together, um, it kind of became business as usual, at least on the teaching front. Yeah. The live music front obviously has been like next to nothing. I, I played two shows last year, one before COVID, which was, um, with the Mark of Cain, it was the, um, what was it called? It was the Firefest. Mm. It was the big, big, big one we did at the uni um, for the bushfires, which was amazing. You know, it was like 5,000 people there. And then the next show I did was December last year with Life Pilot. It was the only show that we played last year, which was great because it was, you know, um, the only thing that we've done post COVID. Mm. Uh, that band, you know, we, we actually took some time to start writing an album right before COVID hit. So we weren't trying to gig. Um, we were actually just sort of decidedly like taking a step back so that we could write a record and then come out and, and release it and tour. But even that was affected purely based on our ability to um, save some money to do it. You know, these things cost a lot of money and the way that our band does things is we have a bank account that we all put money into every week and, and most of us are teachers or artists. You know, Angus is a full-time graphic designer and artist. Um, Simon's a teacher like myself, you know. So three of the five members of the band all went, we don't know where our income's coming from, so we need to, to not, you know, invest in the band right now. So that's really put things on a bit of a back burner. But thankfully now we're at the stage of, you know, gigs are being offered to us. We're able to start gigging again and earn some money. We're able to, you know, feel a bit more confident in where our own personal businesses are and we can reinvest back into the band and get some things happening again. So it's kind of been a, a bit of a wash year in a sense, mm. you know, I'm, I'm happy because I haven't gone backwards. I feel very fortunate. Like I know a lot of musicians who have had a, a lot of struggle through this last 12 months or so. Um, and especially a lot of the road crew and stuff that we're used to working with. Like, I feel so sorry for those people because they've had nothing, nothing up until at all. recently. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, it's it's great to see things starting to turn back around, but I, I feel, like, really fortunate that, you know, I've managed to sail through as unscathed as I can. The only thing has just been missing touring, you know? I just miss it. It's a, It was such a huge part of my life, and it, it just disappeared for a year. So, yeah, I can't wait to get back out. Mm, I bet. So yeah. what plans have you got with the band? Um. Well, The Mark of Cain has a tour that we was supposed to do last year it was going to be the 25th anniversary of their ill at ease record which mm. is probably the one that most people know them for yep so uh, we were really looking forward to that and i was really looking forward to that because we'd just done the 30th anniversary of battle sick and i really enjoyed doing you know we, we played for like two hours every night which for that band is crazy like it's such a grueling thing but i really enjoyed it like it was such a i don't know it was such a test of a tour and i was like I felt like by the end of it, I was really in the zone and I was like, yeah, this is good. I can't wait to do this again. And the Ill at Ease album is a bit more my style of drumming. So I was like, yeah, this is going to be a really good tour and I know people are really going to come out for it. And, you know, it'd be a great payday at the end of it too, which is always a good thing for a starving <laughs> artist. Um, and then sadly, like that was due to happen right around sort of August last year. 
Um, so obviously that got wiped out as soon as COVID happened and we've sort of postponed that. Um, and I know that they want to do that this year if we can, mm. um, make it the, the 25th plus one anniversary. Um, but again, I mean, it's so hard to know if we're going to be able to have the, the crowd capacities that would make a tour like that viable. Um, you know, this band is used to playing in front of, say at least you know 900 plus people every night you know mm. that's that's the standard capacity so you know trying to get venues that will do that and and to have the confidence that something like that will go ahead go ahead on a big that's scale. the thing isn't it because there's always that yeah. fear that a city could get shut down you that's know? right mm. and we've and we've seen it happen so fast mm. um so you know it would be great to do that but i can understand why there's been so much hesitation um, to pull the trigger on something like that. It's not like, you know, if Life Pilot went out and toured, we could make that work probably because they're small scale shows. Yeah. You know, we're maybe talking 100 to 200 capacity venues most of the time. Um, and a lot of them are like open pubs, you know, mm. or similar. So, you know, you can always make that work. And if one gets shut down, it doesn't ruin the whole tour. Whereas on the scale of the Mark of Cain, I mean, we're hiring road crew, we're hiring you know, instruments everywhere, the venue hire fee for, you know, Sydney Metro Theatre, for example, I can't imagine is very cheap. So, you know, if one show goes down, I can imagine that would be a massive, you know, financial thorn in the side. Mm. Um, I, I don't really know much of the, the, the business side of that band. I'm just the drummer, which is nice. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I can imagine it operates on a scale that, you know, any little bit of indecision is... Is, is pretty problematic. So, um, yeah, I'm really hopeful that, that we can get something off the ground. I know the guys are keen. Um, you know, we were really enjoying playing the in 2019 and the start of 2020. You know, we were really, like, hitting our stride with it. Mm. And, yeah, it all kind of stopped. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, in the meantime, you know, if anyone wants any, any drum tracks recorded for them, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is your chance to uh, plug away. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. That's it. I've, I've been doing a couple of little remote sessions here and there and trying to, trying to you know, just get some extra, extra coin in the pocket here and there where I can. But, um, yeah, I mean, the majority of, of how I've been doing it has been drum lessons of late. So if you need lessons, if you want to learn how to play the drums, yeah. come, and, come and say hi. And I will include the link so that anybody that does want to have lessons or anything else from Eli, <laughs> they can get yes. in contact with him and arrange that. So, yeah. Please do. Yeah. And and I'm able to do Skype lessons, you know, internationally and interstate, which has been a, a real boon from, from COVID. You know, like I said, getting that, all of that set up has ended up with me with some students from interstate and, you know, some students in America and... I don't enjoy uh, organising lessons with a 13-hour time difference, but um, the fact that, you know, I can teach people across the other side of the world now is is wild. So, yeah, there are no limits anymore, no I guess. No limits. So it doesn't matter where you are. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> Great. Okay. Eli, who are your top three local drummers? Top three local drummers? Um, ooh, I would say that Alexander Flood is probably number one. Um, Alex is just such an insane drummer. Like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Alex, but he's just this young, fresh out of the conservatorium kid, mm. but with the maturity of a, of a seasoned jazz drummer, like 20 years his senior. Um, he's just so good. I saw him play the first time 
Um, he was a friend of a student of mine and I brought a bunch of students over to Melbourne a few years ago to go to the Ultimate Drummers weekend. Mm. And he, and I remember one of them was like, oh, yeah, I've got a friend who's competing in the, the drum off. And I went, oh, okay, cool. Like probably just some young, young cat, whatever. We'll go check it out. And he won that year. And I just remember watching him play. I was just like, oh, my God, who is this kid? I've never heard of him. Um, and then from there, like he is just blown up like he's he's huge on instagram now he's uh, you know he's been recognized by so many amazing people and musicians overseas like i'm pretty sure his his solo album went up for like first round grammy nomination a month or two ago wow insane right like just absolutely insane so let's check him out (laughs) oh yeah if you if you don't know alex flood like yeah you need to like he's He's going to be the next big drummer mm. who's come out of Australia, let alone little old Adelaide. So it's hard to not say him. Um, so, yeah, he's phenomenal. And, and such a great guy, too. Like, I actually haven't hung out with Alex as much as I'd like to. But um, every time, you know, we, we catch each other around the place, like, he's always down to have a good chat. And he's just such a, such a like, down-to-earth dude. You know, mm. he's so young but so like got his head screwed on straight. I think he's just going to have such a great career and I'm, I'm so stoked to see that. Um, so he would be one. Um, who else do I like around Adelaide? Uh, I like, uh, let me get his, his last name. Um, cause I'm terrible with last names. I can be shocking with names myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think his last name is Dylan DiPaolo. Right. He is, a, he's another young drummer. Um, and he's like, he super reminds me of me at his age. Maybe that's a little narcissistic to say, and he's my favorite, but <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he, he's like this young kid. I, I, I work a little bit, um, as like a videographer on the side here and there. And, um, his bass player is an old drum student of mine. And he asked me to come and like shoot some video of his band Signals, who mm. have, are this like young metalcore-ish kind of band that have, have been doing some shows around the place. And um, one of the things he wanted me to shoot was like a little bit of a, a drum playthrough of, of their new single. Mm-hmm. And I set up my cameras and I, I started filming and he just like, he just plays with such power and conviction and just like nailed this really technical piece first go. And he did like three takes just so I could get some other angles. He would have been done in one realistically. Mm. And I was like, man, like this kid's like 19 or 20. I actually don't know how old he is, but he's very young and he's just, he's killer. Like he's so good. They've, they've played a show with life part now, like opening up for us. And like, I, I just, I love seeing young people who are not only like, really nice and have their head screwed on. They don't think they're just going to be rock stars or whatever, but also have like chops. Like this guy can play. Um, So yeah, he'd be another one. Like he's just a young guy that probably not too many people know about, but yeah, he plays for signals. He also plays for like um, Sasha, the band. And I think he does some other stuff on the side, like almost sessiony kind of stuff, which Mm -hmm. is a little bit like less intense. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think that's another reason why I, I, he reminds me of me in a certain way because like that was me at that age, you know, yeah. I was doing the heavy stuff and then also some other lighter stuff. Um, so there are two guys that I think are really good and a third one in, Oh, there's a few. I'm going to feel bad if I don't name <laughs> people. Um, I like Daniel Steinert who plays for a band called towns. Mm. Um, he and I met 
a few years ago when he played in a hardcore band. I forget the name of their band. They were so good. But they used to open up for Life Pilot all the time. Um, and I just remember watching this young guy who had just all this energy, like just this super like, you know, pumped up, like jumping around kind of like just this fireball on the kit. Mm. And, you know, he was always such a cool hang. Like, you know, I remember like showing him like some trick to like get your rack tom to tune up properly on, on stage one night. And he was like, oh my God, that's so cool. Like he, he's just always been like this really fun dude. He's just like, he just wants to know more stuff. Um, and he's just this great young drummer. Like he's just, again, like great energy, but towns have been really like killing it lately. Like they've, they've blown up in a big way. You know, they're selling out, um, you know, Lion Art Center and stuff on mm. their own, which is amazing. They're just a two piece. Um, he sings as well, which is really cool to see. It um, is, isn't it? Because that's yeah, pretty tricky to do, really. Drumming, singing. It's 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 hard. Mm. I've tried to do it of late. Like I've been working on something on the side where I'm gonna have to sing a little bit, and oh my god, <laughs> it's, it's way too hard. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to put some some hours into that. Mm. But yeah, so Dylan's um. Sorry, Daniel's Daniel's playing is just like, you know, really infectious. Like he just he just goes all in, and I, I love that. He also does some stuff with some pop artists. I think he plays with George Alice at the moment, and um, I know he's been doing some band management, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Um, I I like seeing you know drummers that like don't just play the drums. You know, whether they play other instruments or they MD or they manage stuff. Like he's a really creative guy, and um, yeah, he's also just joined the the uh, artist team for Dream Symbols, which is a, a, a company that I've played for for the last few years. Like we managed to kind of get him hooked in. So he's a bit of a, uh, a, a family member as such mm. um, in that way, which is really cool. So yeah, it's, it's nice to see that. Um, so yeah, those are three guys that I think are really great. They're all really young too, which is kind of cool. Like, you know, there are a lot of amazing older drummers around town. I mean, I owe a lot to Mario and Mark May is amazing. And, you know, there's so many phenomenal, um, you know, older generation drummers. Um, but I, I want to alert people to the new guys that they maybe haven't heard of. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> now, going Welcome. back to the um, Dream Symbols, you've got some very impressive endorsements. Do you want to tell us Thank a bit you. more about them? Sure. Um, well, yeah, so I play with Dream Symbols, as I mentioned. I've been working with them for close to, hmm, must be close to six or seven years at this point. Mm. Um, and they've only been around as a company for, they had their 10th anniversary maybe last year or the year before. Mm -hmm. So I started playing their products back in music school. Because, again, I came into it as this, like, punk guy with these super aggressive-sounding cymbals, and I had to play jazz and all these, like, Miles Davis songs, and I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. Um, so I had to find something that I could afford on a little starving music student budget, and this new company had come out in the States. Well, they're from Canada, but um, they'd sort of branched out into the U.S., and I heard about them on this drum forum. Someone had said that, you know, they have these amazing handmade cymbals for this really, like, low price because they're made in China, which, you know, usually when you hear made in China, you think, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be crap. Mm. But um, the Chinese have been making symbols longer than anyone, more or less. Mm. Them and, them and, and the, the Turkish. Mm. Yeah. So um, I thought, well, that's interesting. We'll give that a go. So I, I bought a couple of symbols on a whim off of some shady website back in 2007. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they arrived and I remember hitting them the first time and like, 
I don't know if you've ever got such a great deal on something, you feel like you've done something wrong, like you feel like you've stolen it or something. <laughs> like I've had that a couple of times in my life. Like one time I found a, a really, really valuable old drum in cash converters for like 200 bucks and it's worth like four grand. Mm. Like I, uh, you know. You can I get lucky like sometimes. It. Yeah. And I just was like, oh my God, like what? These are so good. How did I only pay like $300 for them? Like compa- like combined. So from that point on, I've just always played them and they've brought out more and more stuff. And then when I was touring a lot in that period that I mentioned earlier where I was like really, really busy, I remember the uh, the artist rep for Australia posted something in like a, like a Facebook group, like a drum Facebook group about the cymbals. And I, I said, oh, I've been following these guys like since they started. I'd love to like talk to someone about maybe getting a deal. Who do I talk to? And he's like, dude, talk to me. So we had an off day in Canberra and we were heading to Sydney the next day. And he said, like, dude, just shoot me, like, a, a little press pack of you and, and details about you and the bands you work with, and I'll have a look at it, and we'll we'll see if we can tee something up. And usually this is, like, a longer process. Mm. So I was like, okay, well, I've got the off day. So I just did it all, and I sent it to him later that night, and he was like, oh, this is sick. What are you doing tomorrow? And I was like, well, we're driving to Sydney. And he's like, great, come here, and we'll sign the contract. So awesome. I, yeah, it just, it all happened like that, which was amazing. So I ended up, yeah, driving to Sydney the next day with the band and, and got squared away with him. And, um, his name was Christian and he doesn't work for the company anymore, but like he, he got me set up and I owe him a lot, which was great. Um, so that was, that was dream. And I've been working with them ever since. And, and, you know, like I've gone over to the U S to, um, sort of exhibit for them at NAMM show a couple of times and like, they're all amazing. Like, you know, um, everyone says that about their company, but being a smaller company, like I actually know Andy, the CEO, like personally, you know, he and I chat on online from time to time. And, um, you know, you don't really get that with the major companies, especially if you're just some young guy from Australia, you're so far down the totem pole that, you know, you're kind of getting the scraps at the end of everyone else who's been looked after. Mm. So, it's it's a really awesome relationship I have with them. They've been very supportive of me, and um, they're very like passionate about pushing me um, here. You know, like I've been with them for a long time, and they look after me, so that's great. And the other company I play for is CNC Drums, mm-hmm. who are a uh, US-based company. But um, Jared Treadley is a great great guy who brought them um, well through the drum cartel. Ended up with with Jared Treadley, who ran CNC Drums Australia, still runs. Um, and when I started playing with the Mark of Kane, the old tour manager that we had, I remember he asked me, he's like, do you have a drum endorsement? And I was like, no. Nah. He's like, oh, how do you not have one playing for a band like this? And I was like, well, dude, I've only just started playing with them. Like, I don't really know. He's like, do you want to get hooked up? Like, I know heaps of people. Yeah, hook me up. up yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, absolutely. And he was like do you want to play for Pearl? And I was like, nah, I don't really like Pearl, to mm. be honest. Like, okay, what about DW? And I was like, nah, it's not really my kind of vibe. He's like, Gretch. I'm like, yeah, maybe we're getting warmer. Hey, what about CNC? And I was like, dude, you know someone at CNC? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I know Jared or whatever. Like, we can we can hook that up. Now, he might have had a few too many beers at this point, mm. and he might, might not have actually hooked me up in the end. But it kind of planted the seed. And the more I thought about it, I was like, I've always loved those drums. Like some of my favorite drummers growing up played CNC. I remember mm. seeing that logo and being like, man, like that's, that's sick. Those are some classy looking drums. So after that, I, I ended up emailing around. I, I emailed the, the U S um, factory and they were like, yeah, 
talk to the Europe guys. And I was like, Europe? Um, okay. And I talked to them and they were like, nah, that's not us. Talk to US. And I was like, oh God, this isn't going right. And then they eventually put me on a Jared mm. after about two months of being knocked around. Like I was trying to get some drums for a tour and it didn't happen. And I eventually got in touch with Jared and he was like, hey man, like we're, we'd love to take you on. We're not really taking anyone on at the moment, but like let's keep a dialogue. Like they just started down here in Australia at the time. And then about a year later, I ended up buying a kit from them and he was like, right, cool, welcome to the team. And then from that point on, like they've been so cool looking after like backline for me. Anytime I need a kit, it's there. They'll promote, you know, what I'm doing and stuff. Like I really like that, you know, even though it's a, it's a bigger company, again, same thing with Dream, like it's there's a, a much better relationship with the people at the top and the artists. Mm. Um you know, whereas if I was playing for one of the Pearls or the DWs, I just feel like, you know, there's such a such a huge roster of people that are just so much, like, cooler and have more stuff going on than I would that I feel like, you know, playing for a smaller company, I, I can actually get what I need out of it, you know, and they're, they're really helpful. So, yeah, I, I love those two companies. I have no plans on, you know, jumping ship because... Mm. You know, I, I've always been, a, mm. yeah, well, I've always been a big believer in like, I'm not going to put my name to something unless I actually believe in it. You know, mm. I wasn't seeking an endorsement just for the sake of it. A lot of drummers do that. And I would have happily not had an endorsement, you know, still wouldn't, um, if it wasn't something I didn't actually believe in. So yeah, as long as those companies are companies, I think I'll be playing drums for them. So yeah, I'm very, very appreciative of them and all the support they've given me. Mm. Excellent. Thanks. If you could invite any musician to play a concert anywhere in the world, who would you call? Where would it be held? And what genre would the band be performing? Ooh. Um, You're on the kit. I'm playing. Okay. Mm. Who's um, playing with you? Goodness. That's hard. I... Oh, I really don't know how to answer this because... All of the the artists and bands that I love and, you know, especially grew up loving and, and still sort of idolise to this day that I would want to play with, so much of what makes them great is the person who played drums for them. Mm. And I just feel like I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't do as good of a job. I'd want to watch it instead. Um, I would love to play drums for a band called The Chariot. Um, so I know that's not like individual members, but that band no longer exists. Mm -hmm. um, it was a band that I, I saw twice in my time and they're, they're just so... Um, anyone who knows that band just knows how incredible of a live performance that band put across. You know, there's really no other band quite like them. Um so I would probably want to play drums for uh, some iteration of that band. Um, however, I feel like their drummer would have done a better job. But just, just even to get up and play one song mm. would be awesome. And it would be a house show. It would just be in some dingy, uh, yeah, like house that's about to get knocked down um, where people can just go nuts and crowd surf and break stuff if they want to and it doesn't matter mm -hmm. um what was the, what is there another part the of the genre missed the genre well it would be their music yeah. i guess it would be some some pretty heavy 
heavy chaotic hardcore to go um, along with all the smashing up of the house. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a really iconic video of that band from a time they they toured to Perth and their show got shut down because there was a cafe next door and the guitar player ran out into the cafe and accidentally knocked over a a bowl of pears, <laughs> and the and the cafe owner got really upset and and shut down the power to the venue. Oh wow! So despite the fact they tried to apologise and give the pears back, it didn't <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> Um, so they ended up playing this show in this, like, yeah, like this guy's house or it looked like something that was about to get knocked down. Like it was crazy. They're just playing in someone's living room, but there was no furniture anywhere. Mm. And it's like 400 people jammed in this tiny little space and they're all like crowd surfing and they end up playing on the roof at one point. There's people spilling out into the back garden and people are jumping out of windows. It was one of the most insane punk rock things I've ever seen in my life. And I actually had friends who were there and just like the way they talk about it is just like this magical, you know, almost religious type experience. Because, I mean, when, when have you ever seen something so crazy like that? Yeah, so that sounds awesome. Ever, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. I know. I mean, it's probably not many people's idea of a good gig. They'd be more like, I want to play Madison Square Garden with Sting or something. And, and I'm like, I want to play the worst possible venue with the worst possible sound with a band that doesn't actually sound good, but um, it's it's the feeling, you the know, the feeling of it, it yeah. It's yeah. it's the emotion, yeah. That that band really captured an emotion. So I would I would probably play with that if I could. I think that's the only band that I feel like I would do some sort of justice and um, wouldn't just want to watch as an audience member instead. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Do you ever get bored with your own playing? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, how um, do you fix it? I th- <sighs> That's a good question. I definitely get bored with it fairly frequently. Um, I guess like, I've just turned 30 in the last couple of months and I've been doing it since I was seven. So for 23 years of my 30 years, I've been, you know, I guess my own worst critic with my own playing, as we all often are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's one of those things that the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. Um, and that, that can really weigh on you after a while. You can kind of look at your own playing and go like, oh yeah, I did that grouping of fives again. That I always do that. Or I did that little flam, flam triplet thing that I always do. Ugh, I've been doing that for like the last six years. Um, it can get really like, you can turn into that person that's like very quick to criticize your own playing. Um, one thing that I've done to at least alleviate the symptoms has just been to try to be a little more mindful of that happening and give myself a break mm. and to maybe try and reframe that instead of it being like, Oh, that's a thing I always do as some negative instead to make it like, that's a thing that is me. That's, that's me making a statement that I like to make on the, on the instrument. Um, you know, it'd be like saying to, like all those iconic Jimi Hendrix licks. Mm. Like it'd be like saying, oh, he should have only played those once. Well, that's stupid. You know, like all of those, all of those things that make a musician a musician or, or identifiable, I guess, are important. Mm. Um, so instead of shying away from them, which I think is often the tendency when we get a little too critical, I try to not so much lean into them, but accept them and go like, cool, that's, that's part of me. But I still want to grow. Um, and I think... I, what I will usually do is I'll try and try and learn something new. It seems simple, but um, the older you get and the the more you play, 
or you have played, I think the less you desire to practice and learn new things. Mm. Um, so I've been doing in the last few months, like a, a, a lot of like drum covers on YouTube, which is just me playing like a bunch of my favorite songs or songs that particularly inspire me at the time. So either, you know, they're ones that I've loved for a long time or actually a lot of them are songs that, you know, my students or contemporaries have shown me and said, hey, check this out. This is a cool track. And I'll hear it and go, oh, man, there's something in the drum part there that I'm not super either familiar with or just isn't a part of my playing. Mm. So in the process of learning it and making like a cool piece of content for YouTube or whatever, I end up pulling something out of that that's, that then becomes mine in a certain way. By the time you rehearse something a million times so you can do one shot where you don't screw up, you usually like usually get it. Um, so that's been a cool thing. It's been a good way of keeping my practice going because yeah. if I don't have some, you know, if I don't have a gig going on, I don't really have a reason to practice. Um, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a big <laughs> lazy bones when it comes to getting good at drums. You know, if I, if I have a tour going on in, in the future, I'll go, right, I'll get good at drums a month before then. Otherwise, I'm going to sit down and, you know, play some video games or something. <laughs> so through COVID, when there hasn't been any reason to be good at drums, um, as far as like getting up on a stage and performing, you know, this has been a good excuse for me to to keep my hands in check, to keep growing. Because, you know, I'll go to play something I used to play, you know, a couple of years ago and I'll go, oh, man, I can't do that in the same way I used to anymore. All right, I've slipped a little bit. I've got to hit the practice pad for a couple of hours this week and get that back. So mm. that's been good. Um but usually I, I think I just, no matter what I'm doing, I've, I've, I guess I've matured enough to, to know that like playing the same thing isn't a bad thing if it serves the music. Mm. So first and foremost, whatever I'm doing, I'm either going to be playing something that suits the music and not overshadowing or I'm trying to learn something that someone else has written and in which case there's only one correct answer. It's what's what's on the record. So you know, that's okay. If there's repetition, if it's the same thing, then that that's all right. So yeah, I think a combination of those things is how I keep it fresh. Mm. Is there something that you've really tried to play that you couldn't get right or you weren't satisfied with the way that you played it? Uh, oh, I mean, always, yeah. Um, I have a real perfectionist streak when I do do things when I'm not being lazy and eating potato chips. And, <laughs> and playing video games. <laughs> playing video yeah. Games. yeah, exactly. <laughs> those two usually go hand in hand. Mm. Um, absolutely, yeah. Like, I I hate putting things out there that aren't perfect or flawless. Um, and that's really hard to do as a musician because every time you do something, you identify something that you could do better. Like I can't think of a time where I've ever recorded a part or played a gig where there's, there's like where I've thought there's nothing I could have done better. You know, there's mm. always something you catch. You know, even on that first gig with the market came where I came off stage thinking like I did really well. I can think of moments that I didn't play perfectly. You know, there's always one little thing that sticks in your head. And you go, oh, I rushed that fill or, oh, that should have been a, a left hand on the tom, not a right hand. And, you know, that can be really toxic again if you get stuck into that mindset. Mm. Um, so I, I, I've tried, I guess, over the last couple of years especially – to be less critical and and less because um, I'll block myself if I don't think that I've made it perfect I won't post it or I won't put it out there or I'll do another 10 takes or God knows what you know and I, I don't I don't think that's 
helpful, you know, because every time I put something out that I don't think is perfect, people go, hey, that's that's really cool. And I yeah. go, oh, man, if I hadn't spent all those hours, like, agonising over this thing that I didn't like, you know, I could have spent those hours doing something else, getting better, going on to the next thing, whatever. So, um, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of things. I think the thing that I remember working on the longest was when I was in music school, for my final recital, I did a piece called Zamat Madar, which is this, like, really wacky 7-4 drum and bass uh, it's almost like a solo in a sense. It was like a, a song that this producer had he'd ripped apart these classical scores and had all these amazing epic violin and cello parts and then put like really frantic drum and bass at like 175 BPM in this odd time. Mm. And no bar was the same as another one. There was no repetition throughout the whole thing. And I remember like transcribing that and learning it took me 12 months. Like the whole thing took me a whole year to do it. I thought this would be a great piece to do for the end of next year's <laughs> recital <laughs> at the time. And I started then. And by the time I wrote it out and then started learning it at half speed and going through it and trying to memorize it was the hardest thing. I didn't want to do it with charts on the stage. I hate that. Mm. So I was like, this has to be perfect. And, you know, there's a video of it on my YouTube, which like, you know, it's from nine years ago. So it's a fair while ago now, but, um, you know, I watched that back and I'm like, you know what? I could probably do that better today. But the thing is, I don't remember the song. Yeah. You know, I can, I can identify all the things that I didn't do right or, or I, maybe I could have done differently that I think would be better now. But at the end of the day, no one had played that song live on drums before, you know? So I'm proud of that. You um, should be proud of that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm getting at. Like I could beat myself up for the two mistakes that I made in that or the fact that I could do it better now a decade later. But the fact that I did it and it was pretty okay is good, you know. So I, I think that's that's the attitude I try to take, you know. Uh, we can get a little self-destructive, us creative types. So I, I think it's better to, to, to be a little nicer to ourselves. Yeah, you need to be a bit nicer to yourself for sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, th there is the flip side of, like, if you let too much shit slide, you'll put out mediocre stuff and that's not so good but mm. i think as long as you've got those things in a balance yeah. then yeah you're in a good place yeah where do you see yourself in the next 10 years mm that's a good question um you know i think that's the first time anyone's ever asked me that oh that's good <laughs> it, it is good yeah cuz i guess that's the thing that you know you always hear that like in in other industries like what's your 5 year mm, plan or mm, whatever yeah. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. Um, it's kind of, it's an interesting point, I guess, to ask it now in COVID because I've, I've really been thinking about, um, I guess, where my, my business, my playing, my music, m the bands I work in, where they can really go, mm. you know, because at the moment with everything taken away, it really strips everything of you and go like, you know, shines a light on what's really there. Um, I would say that I will, still be playing music. I will still be probably teaching drums. Mm. Um, I, I would say that like something I've been kicking around in the last 12 months, I guess after I saw how important my teaching was to me surviving and putting food on the table is maybe I'll look at doing something a little bit more substantial with my teaching business. At the moment, it's just me and I just have a room four nights a week that I teach 30 people in and that's cool and do some Skype lessons from time to time. But I'm considering maybe opening my own version of a music school at some point in the, you know, possibly in the next 10 years. Right. Um, 
you know, I have some amazing musician friends who I think, you know, if we all our powers combined, we could really do something very special because I think, um, you know, there's a lot of great teachers around town, but I don't think there's that many teachers that are really focusing on what's happening now in music. Mm. And I think that's something that I've got an advantage in and those that maybe think like me also do in that, you know, we're working out in the, in the modern original music field now, not, you know, playing covers or in tribute bands. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that, you know, that's not where music is currently, you know? So I would love to put together a music school of people who are, you know, current players doing current things um, that people can learn from because, you know, um, I think there's some value in that. And I think that's something that maybe some of the other music schools around the place aren't focusing so much on, with the exception of, you know, maybe the, the city TAFE, which is doing a similar course to the one that I did back in the day. So that might be something I might look at doing. We'll see. Mm. Um, uh, I will definitely still be touring a lot. Um, I don't think that's ever going to change because that's the biggest thing for me. However, I think the conditions with which I will say yes to touring with will change the older I get. Yeah. Um, especially with COVID, I think a lot of musicians have realized that like, if you've got a way to make money on the side, it's a tough ask to go out on tour for no money and still have bills to pay when you get home and sleep on the floor or in bathtubs and stuff. Like I think a lot of people are going to reconsider the way that they do things yeah. um, moving forward. So I'm still down for sleeping on floors. That's fine. But as long as the gigs are good. Um, so I'll, I'll do that as long as I can. Um, it'd be amazing if life parts still going when we're all 40, I think we'll all have bad backs by then. We already we have do, the energy so. for that. <laughs> well, who knows? I mean, we, we have talked about that in the past. Like we, we know that there's a, uh, an age limit, I guess, on Life Pilot because, you know, we just can't perform the way that we think that band deserves to be performed. Mm. Um, you know, so a lot of the, the, the... We've had two members step out of the band over the years and they were both... They, we, we refer to it as that they aged out. Aged <laughs> out. Guy, yeah, we had one guy, I think he was like 38, Tim, the guitarist, he, he was getting married, he was having a kid, so he stepped out and then... Um, our other guitar player, Jake, who started the band, he stepped out again, similar. He was getting married and it was time to settle down. And he was just like, I can't be doing the touring thing. And, uh, you know, I'm getting old and, you know, maybe he could have cracked on for another five years if, if the body was willing. But, you know, if, if you're not there mentally or, you know, physically, physically, like, especially can't. with that one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So who knows whether that band's still going when we're all 40, we'll see, but I know I'll be playing music with, at least some of those people. Um, you know, Nick has been my bass player since I met him. You know, he's, he's played in almost every band I've been in to some extent. Mm. Um, so we'll still be making music. He and I have a, a project that we're working on in the background of all of these things that should Life Pilot ever disappear, that would become our new main band. Um, who knows? I mean, the Mark Kane might still be going in 10 years. <laughs> well, like, probably, yeah. They seem I mean, to be able to... They've yeah. survived, mm, yeah. Mm. Yep, yep. Um, so, yeah, I, look, I haven't really given it a huge amount of thought because I guess as a musician I'm so used to living week to week, month to month, year to year, and it's all just trying to get that little bit further, you know, trying to get that next record deal or that next tour or that next artist or that next session job. I can't imagine much of that is going to change, um, but 
throughout COVID, it's really made me see what's important. It's put a, a bigger focus on my, you know, immediate family and spending time with my girlfriend and, and the things that really like enrich my life outside of stressing about music. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that will, that will happen, you know, I'll get more and more interested in the things that really matter and music as much as it does matter. And it's been the biggest part of my life for the longest time. Um, you know, it will just be the, the things that are really going to enrich me that I will take part in. So yeah, I think that's an answer. That's an answer. All right. Yeah. Thank you. We'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> we will. <laughs> what do you hope to have achieved before you lay down the sticks for the last time? Uh, well, for starters, I don't think I'll ever lay down the sticks. I fully anticipate that I'll get wheeled off of a, a stage having had a heart attack at some point, um, maybe in my 90s. But, yeah, I don't I don't think I'll ever stop performing, um, you know, <laughs> unless some, some freak accident happens. But um, I hope to have done a lot more international touring. It's something that I haven't had an opportunity to really do much of. Um, and I've gone around Australia more times than I can count at this point, And I love that, mm. but you know, I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of these places now and that's great, but I would like to see more of the world through music. Um, I guess that's why I was talking about that Southeast Asian tour, even though that was a pretty unideal deal for me, it would have been a great excuse to go and see a part of the world I haven't been to. So, um, I would like to have music, you know, take me away um to some some uh, places but i guess in the current climate that's something that's really on the back burner yeah um i would like to i would like to release more music um you know i'm sure that will happen but i i i feel like the music that has been put out in the last 10 years by me a lot of it has been stuff that um I, I don't feel truly represents who I am as a musician. Um, mm. So I would like to, I'd like to put out some music that is, you know, me on, on record, you know, it's all me on record, but you know what I mean? Like really a, a true um, fingerprint of, of who I am at a certain point. Um, so that would be good to, to have a record of some description that I can look back on and go like, yeah, that's, that's me. My magnum opus as such. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and I mean, that's, that's kind of it. You know, I don't, I don't really want, you know, the, the, the fame or the fortune. I mean, some fortune would be okay. Um, but you know, I'm not, I'm not in it to win a Grammy or, you know, be the next huge thing. Um, I, I quite like living my Adelaide life, you know, um, I'm not in any hurry to move to LA or do anything too wild. I just... Uh, I guess I just want to live a nice, fulfilling life. And if I can do that through music, then that's phenomenal. So, yeah, I guess that's it. Well, that's a great answer. Thank you. Thank you. Before we end our chat today, I'm going to ask Eli 20 quick random questions or as many as we can get through in the space of two minutes to close the interview. Are you ready, Eli? I have never been more ready. <laughs> Your time starts now. What was the first concert that you went to? Um, the first one I remember was Carpathian at Fowler's Live. Xbox or PlayStation? Xbox. Name the first CD that you purchased. 
Uh, it was the Veronica's, um, what was the single, uh, hold on tight, Revolution. Who taught you how to ride a bike? Um, my dad taught me how to ride a bike. Name a band that you wish that you had seen perform live. Um, oh no, oh no, oh no. Um, I would pick a band called, um, oh, I wish I saw the Mars Volta. Name your favourite Pokemon character. Um, oh, there's a lot. I Look, I'm just going to keep it simple and I'm going to go for Charmander. Who is the better drummer, Dave Lebanto or Danny Carey? Um, they're both amazing. I saw Danny Carey with Tool a few months ago and it was ridiculous. He did a 30-minute gong solo. So, him. <laughs> if you could trade places with anyone for a day, who would it be? I would trade places with... I would I would trade places... This is going to be weird. I'd trade places with my girlfriend so I could understand her better. Isn't that lovely? Lovely. The most st- sticks that you've dropped during a gig? Uh, oh, a lot. I, I can't remember dropped, but there was one gig where I broke five in a row. Um, that was a bad time. Name one thing that you cannot live without. Coffee. Favourite venue? Um, I like the... Oh, no. Um, what's the name of... Oh, no. Oh, no. Quick. <laughs> ah! I like Vinny's Dive in, in the Gold Coast. What was the last movie that you went to see? Oh! Time has gone uh, off. The last movie I went to see, I don't remember what it was. I watched a great Korean film last night, though, called The Wailing, which was two and a half hours long, but it was sick. So we'll say that. <laughs> okay. Well, we've run out of time. <laughs> How many did I get through? Oh, I feel you, like I got stuck on a few. Yeah, I'll have to add them up later for you. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Time's up anyway. So thanks again, Eli, for joining me for the Bandit About podcast today. You've been great to chat to, and I hope that everyone who listens to this finds it as enjoyable as I did. All of the information <laughs> and links relating to today's interview can be found in the description field. And please feel free to message me if you have any ideas or requests for future Bandit About podcast guests. And make sure that you subscribe, follow, rate, comment, or even leave a voice message to help this series to reach more people who enjoy music interview podcasts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye from me, Di and Eli. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, Eli. You really have been great to chat to. Awesome. Glad. Thank you very much. Bandit About, proudly supporting live music. Bye. Bye.